Hello and welcome to another episode of our show 28.4 FM, Connecting India's Youth to the World. We're excited to begin our new conversation series and it's on a topic that is very relevant, timely and important to me and hopefully to all of you. We're going to be talking about freedom of expression in India. And this has taken precedence in the last few months because of all the high profile sort of cases in the Supreme Court in various levels of the judiciary as they relate to activists around the country who have been uh, imprisoned for, for their activism. And I think it's now time to reevaluate how much power we are giving our government and indeed the courts in terms of regulating speech in the country. So because this topic is very nuanced, we have with us a lawyer, Abhinav Sekri, who is a criminal lawyer practicing in the courts of Delhi. His primary interests are criminal law and procedure, and he has done his LLB from the National Law School in Bangalore, as well as a graduate degree from the Howard, uh, from Howard Law School. Abhinav, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. My pleasure. So let me start off at a high level. To what extent would you consider speech free in India? And, and how has this changed in the last sort of few months? And let's just talk about, you know, since 2014, since the last, since this new government took power. So on the first issue of how, how free is speech, I'd say it's as free as the government feels like it until someone who has the wherewithal to go to a court decides to go to the court and challenge what the government does. So that's one. And I really mean that. And I hope that over the course of our conversation, I'll be able to explain just how. And the second is, so I don't think that, I mean, yes, there would have been a downslide since 2014, but I'd say that, frankly, it's part of what has happened since 1950 itself, since the choices that we made at the start. It's there since the start. It's obviously, I mean, you can see that there are troughs and there are, I mean, there are peaks, right? So right now it seems that as a, as a democracy itself, there are various challenges that we are facing, definitely. And some challenges much more gravely than others, such as what about the idea of questioning what is a national project? So earlier also, you would have questions about the national project. There have always been questions about a national project. It's integral to, you know, an idea of a country, probably, especially a young one like us. But right now, it's just there are very few qualms about uh, putting people in line, so to speak. So, so I'd say that, uh, let's say that the recipe has always been there. It's just about who, how, how far you decide to go. So it's always been a question of benevolence, not really a question of the legal fabric as such. Definitely. And India's history of free speech is of course a very checkered one. And we often forget that it was the first parliament, a first government of Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru, which was actually the constitutional assembly sitting at the provisional parliament that allowed white government white powers to restrict free speech. Now, constitutional lawyers and students would of course know that as Article 19.2. So how did we come here? Like, um, what in your view has been the historical attitude of the lower courts surrounding freedom of expression? Because there is a growing perception that speech is less free today than at any point in the recent past. So how did we get ourselves there? So, I mean, so let's unpack that because I think that there are three different uh, points in what you said, Sanskriti. So, I mean, the first one would be just the history part of it because I think that's really fascinating and there's been more writing about it in the last four years than what might have been in the last 40. 
I mean, essentially, since you had what is Granville Austin writing his books about the Constituent Assembly's debates. So, I mean, recently there's been a there's been a book called Sixteen Stormy Days that only focuses on the First Amendment to the Constitution and puts forth the idea that look, the government was responsible for bringing us to where we are today. That's certainly an argument, but I don't necessarily agree with all of it. I'd rather go somewhere in the middle where the idea of restrictions was something that we agreed to at the start of the Constituent Assembly, and frankly, they were worse. And I'll tell you why, at least why I think they were worse. So, if you look at the the unamended sort of version of Article 19.1a, it basically says that the government can pass law, and there are certain categories that are outlined. So, security of the state. I'm a bit hazy on the language, and I've act I actually had it open in a tab because I knew that this is going to go here. So, uh, you have specific categories that are outlined. What happens with the First Amendment is there are two separate things that happen. One definite, in my view, bad thing is that that set of categories is broadened to include very vague, nebulous, frankly, horrible things such as public order. So it now says you can restrict fees, you can pass laws that take away your right for things such as maintaining public order. Now that's one part. The second part is it's not only saying that you can pass laws that take away these rights. So it's actually toned down the absolutism in a way, because what 19.2 today says is that you can pass laws that contain reasonable restrictions to these rights. Now, now that is a change in a way that it actually improves upon what was there earlier, because what you have now is that you have this idea of reasonableness that comes in that essentially means that you can't simply say, okay, you can't talk about security of the state. You can't talk about matters that the government thinks affect the security of the state. The government can pass a law, but that law has to withstand scrutiny. Now, who decides that it withstands scrutiny? And that comes to your part about the courts, right? So ultimately then reasonable restrictions is how the constitution decided, okay, I will allow courts to go ahead and exercise some form of scrutiny on what the government's doing. Now, is it a good measure? So I honestly think that what, what we have now as a model in India, and that links back to the first answer about what's the scope of free speech, is actually this. The government can frankly still pass any law that it thinks is fine, as far as the restrictions on speech are concerned because there is what is called a presumption of legality. So whatever law is passed, it's presumed that it's good law, right? Unless, unless someone goes to court challenging it. And now the constitution does tell you that, okay, a court has to decide if it's reasonable. But reasonableness is, in, is again vague, right? That's one. And two, courts take time. And something that's happened in the last sort of, I would say over the decade actually, but obviously it's become much more pronounced over the last five years with the amount of just data that we have that the most important court as far as, you know, deciding issues of freedom of speech is concerned, just takes so much more time to decide them and sometimes just does not decide them. Right? So if your legal framework is government, you pass law. And after that, the court can come in if someone goes to the court 
and if the court just decides not to do anything about it then in effect you've gone back to a system where the government can do anything it wants and that's a problem because every day that goes by right every day that would have gone by suppose where now the kerala government withdrew its ordinance but imagine every day that it would have gone by with having the ordinance that allowed the police to arrest people for objectionable media posts online and elsewhere even though i would argue as a lawyer that that was clearly unconstitutional that would still allow day after day after day for people to be arrested who's going to go back and you know are we going to give them damages for the unlawful custody that they suffer of course not that's not going to happen so so these are the costs that we have in the model you know of of law that uh, india still subscribes to and the costs are becoming bigger with the courts taking much longer to decide these issues so i want to drive this point in a way that's a little less abstract and more you know yeah, yeah. tangible so yeah. a, a lot of people around me will say okay you uh, you're among amongst the few people who will obsess about free speech and how important it is but how does it affect the average person's life and i'd like you to give me like a, a good answer that i can give to them that why should an average citizen of the country care about free speech so i'll tell you why because the the way the law is right now is that if you if you post anything online right anything and i mean literally anything posted and posted online write about it today it is lawful if some police officer thinks that whatever you wrote was objectionable i mean the language is not going to be objectionable per se but they're going to figure out something there's some problem with it it's obscene right or shudder it's seditious right who decides it at the ground level is a police officer right for me to say that no my speech was not seditious i can't fight that fight at that level no so literally whatever i write i at some level have to censor myself in my brain right. that oh don't write this because someone some police or some even not even police right some random person might file a complaint against me in some random corner of the country random for me because i live in a certain part and that part is random for me and then i have to be at the mercy of legal proceedings anywhere that's why our free speech is not really free because if i have to literally keep thinking about that each time and obviously if i'm someone who who engages with politics who engages with the choices that the state makes that cost is obviously bigger it's not going to be a cost that ordinary people will face that's that's fine but that's not that's not the point the point is that who has to make those fights right because someone does have to and why should the cost be so high for them to say literally basic things such as oh you know this is stupid policy and it it's not it's not fair it's not fair i mean as an abstract it is not fair even if you imagine any society the costs can't be so high to speak your mind definitely and on that point i would like to move on to a subject that is certainly very critical when we talk of about free speech which is hate speech as you rightly mentioned forms of uh, sedition contempt of court now hate speech is of course an area that is widely accepted as requiring some form of prohibition that is speech that incites violence as in the american constitution it's called the fighting words doctrine 
India, of course, has a criminal law that makes hate speech, that is speech that spreads hate towards a particular religion, caste, or community, uh, an offence that can land someone in jail for three years now. Abhinav, do you see Section One Fifty Three A of the IPC or even Section One Twenty Four, that is sedition, of course? Um, do you think it is reasonable restriction on free speech? Or on the other hand, do you think it is good enough, or do we need more provisions to prevent hate speech? So, I mean, as a lawyer, I'd say that you know this is something that the Supreme Court was asked to think about in what in, in a decision called Pravasi Bharatiya Sangathan. So there, I mean, the issue was literally just this, and the courts were asked to decide upon it. Supreme Court said, "Look, you know, our existing framework is fine. So you have all these laws that regulate hate speech and offensive speech, and we think that it's fine." I mean, I, I think the answer is that the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and if you were to look around you as to what's happening, it's. I mean, I, I think the answer is a bit obvious as to what is the the what is enough, what is not enough. But let's let's go beyond that, right? Because I be, I believe I'm here to provide the nuance as it is. So, <laughs> I I think it again boils down to a, a big question about enforcement, and I think hate speech. Globally, and I don't think it's only India right now, right? But I think hate speech on social media platforms—not only platforms, but also close-knit social media, where you don't have a platform as such, but you have invite-only groups which are spewing hate speech. I mean, sometimes that's literally all that you get, or WhatsApp groups for that matter. So, I mean, there are difficult questions about regulating. how far do you go what are the obligations of private players in this field because ultimately it's there are i mean i have to try and tone down the the abstraction but there is one issue of what do you call hate speech and i think you can maybe do a little bit better as far as indian law is concerned to broaden it further and you know definitely but i think that's that's actually a smaller part of the problem because the other parts are where it happens and who is there to regulate it and i i think that uh, that there are you can't just change the law to fix those problems it's it it's much deeper and i think that what we're seeing globally is a proof is proof that uh, you know this problem is something that probably is going to contain a lot of rights activists as well as lawmakers over the next 5 to 6 years so, so when i when i think about civil liberties and free speech you know i'm not a lawyer but it's common sense that you you would think of the judicial branch as a check and balance on excessive uh, yeah. legislative overreach yeah. in this domain but you know correct me if my impression is wrong but over the past several weeks and months i have seen instances where the court hasn't shown that level of deference for free speech in its own right and in its own wisdom has chosen to uh in request or initiate contempt proceedings in various instances um yeah. to what extent is this trend sort of a historical and unique to the past few years and is this something that concerns you as uh, as an officer of the court no so again i i i divide that across two questions so one is the role of the judiciary as checks and balances and you know the court not doing enough and then contempt bit because i think it's it's separate enough for it to require conversation 
in and of itself about the about the court not doing enough so like i said you are absolutely right in how you see the court in terms of serving as a check and balance because i mean literally that's what the first amendment did it made it very clear that the court is going to serve as a check because when the constitution says that there are reasonable restrictions and it also says that courts are the ones who will put a stamp of legality that yes these restrictions are reasonable in this case now if you have a setup where the courts just don't do that quickly enough or frankly even often enough i mean i'm fine if you pass a decision that you know says okay i think it's reasonable today we've moved to a space like you said where courts just aren't deciding those issues or on an average that issue will take over a year to decide while the law is still in force so it's definitely a problem right so and i'm saying let's not even get to how the court decides things because i think that's too technical and maybe beyond what we want to talk about and there are issues with that but i'm saying just you know decide things and there are ways in which as a court or i'm not only saying the supreme court but even high courts where these issues come first you know why don't we have slowly a setup where even these matters that are challenging the legality of statutes let's decide them expeditiously you know let's let's put them on a fast track of sort so that we everyone has clarity going forward but in a in a setup where right now habeas corpus type petitions where people get arbitrarily picked up those petitions are not decided for years in some cases i mean what else is going to happen right so courts definitely are not doing enough you are absolutely right in that perception and that there is a clear link in the in the idea that you know how free is my speech because if you have a setup where the courts are seen to be doing enough even that much i'm sure that any government state or center is going to think twice about it if you have a setup where courts are seemingly you know ah okay fine i'll look at it when i feel like it if that's the perception that the society gets at large obviously your your freedom of speech is going to feel threatened coming to contempt now that's a <laughs> that's something totally different altogether now different altogether in terms of one why do we need a law of contempt and two how and you know how culpable or how responsible is the court i honestly don't have a good enough answer on the second one because what happens is that in the technical scheme of things so like like a lot of people would have seen the law officer the the foremost law officer of the country the attorney general correct is required to give consent unless the court itself starts contempt proceedings so we've seen two very prominent instances of both right so in the case of one certain individual the court itself started contempt proceedings right and then there was a 1 rupee fine and all that so that's the example that i'm talking about and then obviously you have examples where the attorney general starts gives consent for the contempt proceedings to start so i'd say that on the latter i'm not going to go into what the court is going to do or what it's not going to do but on the former i mean definitely even then you have a clear idea that a court is still very concerned about its its public perception and i personally think that it does not make sense 
The court should set an example, right? Like you know, exactly. in terms of deference for free speech. Yeah. That so was the point. Maybe I wasn't making clearly enough that if the direction from the top. Yeah. And, and you know what? It's, it's really fascinating. And I, all I can do is maybe just point you guys and listeners to, you know, just see the kind of public utterances by judges in the last two to three years and judges at various levels right. while they're sitting on the bench and even privately when they're giving speeches. So I remember very clearly there were certain judges during, during you know, when this contempt stuff was hot on the press, it was something that was making daily headlines. I remember, I don't remember the name of the judge, but I remember someone went ahead in the public and said, you know, as judges, we have to just sit there and we have to listen to all sorts of stuff that gets said about us. And how is that fair? You know, there should be some restraint in commentary about what we do and how we do it. And in my head, I'm like, hold on. Why should like, you are, you're a public office. People are allowed to disagree with how you go about doing what you do. I know that judges are not elected officials. Everyone knows that, but they're certainly not exempt from scrutiny simply because they're judges. And I think, at some level, you know, it's not judges, lawyers, they're not very clear about where, what's the balance. There's certainly a balance. Nobody should be subjected to the vilest forms of speech that we know people can, can go. Obviously, people can go that far. But to say that, you know, it's a problem if people are talking about our role as judges and how we go about it. I mean, isn't that a bit too far? For instance, passing gag orders and have you feel, I mean, isn't that just a bit too far? That's, that's what I thought. I mean, definitely the leading, for example, part is, is unstated. Obviously, courts have to serve as an example. But I mean, I was very piqued by curiosity about, you know, how even though they're sitting on the bench and I've, I've written about this in a different context. So I've written about it in the context of criminal law and, you know, this idea that if you look at the past 20 years of sorts, and if you go before that, before the era of the PIL, so to speak, courts really didn't occupy a public space in India. I mean, if you look at the headlines, courts did form headlines, right? Judicial decisions. So I've done a lot of archival work for my uh, thesis way back in law school. So if you look at judicial decisions, I looked at the Times of India's archives you had decisions that were front page news. They were because, well, court decisions of the Supreme Court were considered to be really important. There would be criticism. There would be decisions that are, you know, not liked by the press and editorials. But that, that was there. But since, you know, this, this PIL era, when the court actively steps into governance, you are actively stepping into governance. You are openly admitting that you are stepping into governance and you're very happy about it. And people are very happy about it. But when people are not happy about it, for instance, you know, when a court says, okay, let's do free testing and then changes its mind and says, okay, let's not do free testing for right. COVID. I mean, people are entitled to not feel happy about it and well talk about not being happy about it. And we, sh- we can have a whole different conversation on judicial activism over the last decade and, in India, you know. And it is, and it's linked to this idea of contempt, right? Because right. I think that the court actively set itself up for a space of more public scrutiny, the more it got into governance. And I think that at some level, it reflects certain judicial attitudes, public attitudes and lawyer attitudes, all of us, because even the bar associations, you know, jump to the defense of judges. 
right i'm a member of bar association <laughs> right so i know what 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 i don't know all that happens there but i know a lot that happens there because ultimately this is a professional community that thinks that its members are being attacked and i think that underlying that we just not very clear about public engagement what's criticism what's not criticism all criticism is not an attack on you it's an attack on your decisions there's a yeah. difference and i think that you know those lines are still not very clear in public discourse and and that i mean when it when it's the court and with all power at its disposal it it sends a signal and it's not a good one definitely and that brings me that reminds me of a judgment by uh, justice oc reddy then 1987 the jiwa witnesses yeah. when he protected the rights of the jiwa uh, like the community not standing up for the national anthem which brings yeah. me to something of what is national like what is uh, patriotism in forms of now we have this really stringent act in place that is the uapa now not a lot of people knew about the uapa mm-hmm. until 20, 2019 amendment now let's make this clear right the uapa was uh drafted in 1967 by the indira gandhi government because of the secessionist tendency of the dmk and nagaland and assam right then we had 2004 amendment 2008 amendment and it's it's not like we did not have the uapa act in forms of the uh prevent the tada act which had this uh, provision if you remember uh, uh section 3c which are the same provisions bail provisions as the uh, the uapa act what makes the uapa act different is it Uh, the time it was drafted is it because the abrogation citizenship what is with the uapa like why can't we understand like i'm just frustrated at this point you know first i i mean i can sense that uh, so i think i think uh, i'm actually guilty of sort of becoming this person who talks a lot about the uapa but <laughs> uh, i mean i sort of set myself up there like i said the court has set itself up so <laughs> uh you're right when you said that the uapa set up and again i think what abhishek what you said was that we can do separate episodes of stuff i think the uapa can be an entire separate episode for you I guys i just want to point out that uh, abhinav has written a really good article in the caravan which we link in the episode description i think it's worth reading on to give his full thoughts on on why he thinks the latest amendment is problematic having said that let me hand it over back to him so so that's very kind of you but uh, so on on the uapa right so just i'm going to go on a little bit of a long monologue or discursive monologue of sorts which might digress from the point but so it's historically like like sanskriti said it's 1967 and it's not 2020 as some people think it's not right now it's been here for a while but from 1967 till 2004 it was a very different kind of law it came in to deal with like she said secessionist tendencies that's in itself curious because the law actually was first mooted four and a half years before it got passed and by the time it was actually passed those secessionist tendencies and all but waned they were actually so there was a committee that was set up in 1963 that recommended doing this law you had wars in the middle and you had the war with china you had so it the secessionist tendencies start just around the end of the indo chinese war and they are out by the time let's say the indo pakistan war happens in 1965 you have the uapa in 1967 and so there are interesting debates there about you know its birth itself 
and the UAPA in its in its first sort of 1967 to 2004 rule was actually this really anti-free speech law. And I'd say it was one of those predominant anti-free speech laws and not anti-liberty law as you know, today what it's becoming. Because what the UAPA did was it prevented anyone from talking about anything as far as India's territorial boundaries are concerned. You could just not talk about wanting to set up a different state, wanting to maybe leave the country, not allowed. And what was criminalized was talking about it, talking about it publicly. Right. So the first prominent attacks on the UAPA in parliament, as it were, were actually free speech attacks. Like, you know, it's just totally ridding away our notions of what is political debate. And the government managed to get this law through. But if you look at its enforcement, it's it's not something that got used very often, maybe because conversations about leaving the country or what is the state of satisfaction with the union sort of dipped in intensity as well, sort of but not entirely. Then you have 2004 to 2020, which is where we are today. And why the UAPA is something that, you know, is different now from what it was before is because today it serves this really important function for the governments, plural, is that it's like the only anti-terror law that's there, right? So it replaces TADA. It replaced, so TADA was replaced earlier itself. So TADA actually died a natural death, so to speak, after taking a lot of lives and ruining a lot of lives. TADA decided to die a natural death sometime in 1996. We had this period between that and what is called the Prevention of Terrorism Act. Correct. Which did not have a real anti-terror law, so to speak. And so in that time, you had you had very high profile terrorist incidents. So you had uh, a purported attack and I mean, what am I saying purported, whatever, there's a Supreme Court decision affirming the conviction. So there was a Red Fort case, which a lot of people don't remember because it wasn't as high profile as what happened later, which was the parliament attack. Parliament attack. And parliament attack was just around the time that you, know, you had uh, the new ordinance and the new yeah. act. And then that also went by 2004. That's when you had the amendments done to the UAPA. Now, where I think the UAPA is different and it's closer to TADA, but it's still more different than what TADA was, is because the UAPA has, from its start, had that you know, lineage of anti-free speech. It, it is there. It's part of the law's conception. It's part of its use, although a dormant use, but it's still part of it. On top of which you sort of bootstrap this set of provisions about terrorism, which are vaguely worded. Vague, when I say vague, I mean vague to the level at which you can't even imagine vague. Right? So they're vaguely worded. And there are no decisions of courts that are regulating, okay, what what is the scope of these provisions? Now, why it's it's, it's, you know, it's different. It's different because it's come at a time, obviously, when terrorism, national identity globally are things that are very different. Correct. All countries are, again, and I can't keep stressing as to how India is not very unique. unique, sadly, but it's not very unique. It's actually, you know, it's, it's part of various countries. We fall in a bracket where authoritarian regimes exist 
and it's it's probably right to start identifying that but the uap is becoming prominent at a time when this is a trend this this fear of national identity you know which started let's say with with parliament attack for us and obviously the world trade center attacks this fear that you know this this nation is always at you know it, it's always about the next attack and i mean you're in the us and this is something that it's part of a lot of the public safety thinking and the national security establishment there it's always about the next attack and in india you know that's slowly growing into the motif as well that you know it's always about preventing the next big threat and you start seeing threats everywhere like everything is about a threat to the safety so there were there was a there were the public demonstrations against the burning of a corpse in the hathras gang rape incident and journalists travel there and there's a media scrutiny and that becomes this plot to destabilize the government everything is a plot and i'm saying that when you have that being the mindset the primary law that's going to give effect to these fears is obviously going to become that much more used so so that's one reason the other reason is obviously the last 25 years and india's the india i mean the political struggle with maoism and aggressive wars as such guerrilla warfare that's there in various parts, parts of the world, like the red corridor as such so that's definitely there as well but you link that with this larger feeling of threats to the national establishment and you start seeing conspiracies i don't know whether they'll be proven in court or not or whether they actually exist i'm not part of any of those briefs right and nor have those cases been decided but i'm saying that you it becomes legitimized in the way the national establishment thinks right because this idea of fear is just so deep it's 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 so pervasive and i can't i mean you know it it seems as if i'm talking in abstractions but trust me you talk about it in terms of the us you talk about it in terms of the uk any country today this there is a very very dominant trend that is built upon the idea of fear fear yeah. to national security fear to local security and that defines a lot of state responses france for example right what about that unprecedented state of emergency that just kept getting prolonged again and again and again because you have that idea that there is a threat to our national identity so i'm saying that the uapa has been very prominently used because we are living in this time one and b there are real threats as well because there is armed violence that does happen in parts of the country that is built upon the idea of you know negating what is the dominant idea of the the nation and it's not very hard to link the two so so that's like the the long answer on the uapa and why it's necessary for the government to use it So in in such a scenario I I would imagine that you have a bulwark against you know government misuse misuse of these provisions and we were talking this we were talking about this briefly before we got onto the podcast but uh you know when I think about the United States there is a strong first amendment protector yeah. constituency called you know it's called the ACLU over here but that's not the only one and that's not the only cause that people litigate to uh you know preserve 
so so my impression is that you know we have a, a, a sizable legal community in india they're very active and 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 it was my impression that this would be the bulwark like the lawyers would be the bulwark against the government coming and infringing on the rights of the individual and uh, i want you to dispossess me of my immature opinions right now <laughs> so so i'm going to first just emphasize as to how you know you made uh, you've really hit the nail on the head because when i say that the uapa might seem necessary that's just one part of the political equation right the uapa however necessary it might seem the cost can't be jailing people endlessly for year after year yeah. especially in a law where you have more than 65% acquittals right so that shows you that you know this is the cost that we are paying and that's not a fair balance it's just not fair and again why that happens is because of the structure of the law it it is just so you allow for arrests based on suspicions anyway across the board right when you allow that to happen even in a special law an extraordinary law like the uapa which allows you to go inside for years on end it's 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 problem number one you then create a, a legal regime where bail becomes the exception rather than the rule and no norm right and and you then basically create a situation where although the law is telling you hey you know there's a presumption of innocence in our society in our legal system but you're still going to be in jail for the next foreseeable future counted in years not days it's not i mean so that's the bargain that we've struck and that's that's really i mean it's unacceptable really now about lawyers and about how can we how can we fight this or how how has anyone fought this so i think it it again travels back to where can these fights happen and those are the courts and so there are so okay there are various issues as to why that's not happened the way you know people who are outside of the profession might think it can happen some reasons are very valid strategic reasons some reasons are not very valid and some are frankly just very professional and you know it's it's about ultimately you're living as part of a system in a society so what might be the valid reasons are if you go to a court and get a decision right on such as okay i'll challenge the uapa's validity you go in there but you lose then what then you're stuck then not only not only is that law there right going back to the setup law there yes let's go to court to challenge it let's see what happens there if you lose then there is nothing stopping anything anymore right so lawyers especially cause lawyers in india have to be really careful about moving ahead and this is something that you will find you know if you speak to anyone i i don't do cause lawyering as such i'm not a public interest lawyer as such but it's a it's such a big debate because the way it works in india is that you have the supreme court that sort of stands above all other courts and whatever the supreme court does it's binding on every court and it's binding on the entire legal system so imagine a situation if someone runs to the supreme court with a botched petition intentionally gets an order which upholds the legality of the law because well the courts just going to decide what's before it 
and then effectively you sort of subverted this entire idea got a stamp of legality where you know it might not otherwise have come trust me it happens i mean i am not making this stuff up and there is sabotage of yeah, exactly and and the word that you find being used amongst cause lawyers is it's called the ambush pil right you sort of run there ambush the judiciary with a pil which doesn't allow for the court to really get into the meat of the issues but it just sort of throws up this bogey in the courts like what's this nonsense get this out of me and the court will uphold the law in the process even without fully you know realizing what's going on at times because sabotage is the word that best describes it so cause lawyers have to be very wary therefore it's and it's becoming more and more organized so you will find more and more considered considered challenges going to the high courts where you know lawyers will take their time to build up a challenge they'll build up a brief you will find the right case to take forward much like how it happens in the us so you have test cases that you wait for right so having seen i mean we just we're in the year where ruth bader ginsburg has passed away correct and her documentary and her life is a great example of cause lawyering and mm-hmm. waiting for the right cases to challenge and pick your battles yeah. so i think a, a, a big part of that is also affecting the uapa in india where you are really you know you think that it's coming and i would think that it's coming especially because more indiscriminate use of such a such a harsh law allows for more test cases for lawyers and i think that as we speak there might be you know that group of cause lawyers somewhere in the country who are really building that petition up with statistics with data that shows all that's wrong with this law but at the same time cause lawyering is not that well organized in india there is no real i mean there are organizations that in their heyday were comparable to let's say the aclu you had organizations such as the people's union for civil liberties that is still a very that's still a very prominent organization in some parts of the country but doesn't have an all india reach you have the people's union for democratic rights again so there are these organizations but as as legal organizations so they are civil liberty organizations but their capabilities for organizing cause lawyering is maybe not at the level it would what it used to be and then as lawyers itself individual lawyers there are costs to you know taking these decisions being these people who repeatedly fight these fights get typecasted as oh you are like this public interest litigator who will just always be there it comes with a professional cost absolutely right because ultimately you are either you are, there are various identities that all of us have to you know make sense of your political beliefs your political identities where do they fit with your professional identity do you see yourself as a lawyer right you know as someone yeah. who's part of a profession who wants to do good for himself or his family go ahead you know get somewhere in life and have reputation or whatever you know the standard professional career goals that anyone will have so so as a lawyer it's not a bad thing to just be a professional where you know you do this to earn a living and in the process you help people solve their disputes and you help people navigate the system there's there's no there's no shame in being that but at the same time obviously if you are if you view yourself as that kind of person you're not going to be the person who's also you know inclined to 
go headlong into what is going to be a messy political battle which is any political battle of course and these and these legal challenges slowly transform into political battles especially in a situation where the government is giving you a signal that it's not afraid of picking on lawyers so just to give you an example there are raids that happen with prominent advocates houses with government agencies raiding them there are organizations that get raided there are lawyers that get picked up on uapa charges lawyers who were defending other uapa accused today stand accused of uapa cases themselves so it just becomes that much harder for let's say you know an outsider a fresher in the legal profession who is caught up between various you know my political identity or what is it that i want to do where you know i want to fight the good fight but at the same time i want to you know have a quote unquote a normal life where i grow up marry have children grow old with them and have a decent profession to back on so that i can grow old without having to be at the mercy of a bank loan and i'm saying that it's there's no there's no shame in anywhere it's just that slowly i feel that the that the willingness to fight the political fight is also increasing which is great the average lawyer like you know like myself i i don't consider myself to be an activist lawyer at all i don't have the courage for it as i am today but i think that the ability to speak truths to power is increasing slowly for sure right and i think overall that then itself is going to have a net gain the more you have lawyers who would not be you know willing to fight political fights as such but they're not afraid to take up the cases where really you know you you just can't stand by and keep looking anymore so the more and more briefs get taken up by lawyers who are competent who are willing to you know take up a case and really take it up and not just do it for the heck of it but at the same time you don't have to be someone who's a card carrying political party member right so the more you find that community contributing to civil rights and civil liberties activism they're not going to be leading it i'm not saying that those that middle category of lawyers is going to be leading the fight but the more you find that category of lawyers willing to take on a political brief and do it justice it's going to have a net gain on where we are because right now it's 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 building there and i think that's you know an unintended positive consequence of just how brazen some of the government decisions have become that more and more people are and more and more lawyers who might have let's say been willing to stand by and you know not really get into dirty work are like you know you just can't stand by and let this keep happening that's that, that that's yeah. definitely the case of course and this bring me to something which is really interesting and hopefully uh something that's like a closing question if i may there is has like indians become more prickly of taking offense over time <laughs> or do you think this has always existed because from your like i just ask you strictly from your practical experience right and how do you see this evolving like what do you see as the future of free speech in india now like let what, me, what is happening before you answer that let me tag on to that because you know this is something in my mind at the end of the day the political system to some degree i don't know how well it does that it reflects the values of your society right and when you, there are deferential values in indian society which do give undue importance to authority 
and 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 do frown upon sort of anything that's considered quote unquote deviant behavior and in this case this would be speaking your mind out against something which is considered the orthodoxy so so to what extent is is this system just a reflection of where we are as as a as a society and a country I don't uh, okay so i live in bombay right because yeah. i i'm surrounded by bollywood fans like i i myself i'm not a bollywood fan but when you see the evolution of bollywood with regards to like the music or the film titles uh people like you can see that they they were they were taking offense in that sense also so i'm not strictly talking about politics in general but then indians in general like yeah. what is happening i think i think it i mean you know talking about and talking at the level of generalizations has its benefits and has its has its limitations yeah and uh, so let's be very clear about that at the start i, I mean you know it's a i mean we talk, we spoke about india as a society not being very clear upon what it means to have public discourse and what it means to have discourse about public office and i i stand by that wholeheartedly and i mean that that affects how you see the court consider people talking about it you see that at the micro levels as well and i'm i'm maybe misremembering but i remember just i think it was ramchandra guha in a podcast that i was listening to recently i might be wrong here but i think it you know the the opinion that i'm remembering sort of it, it sounds like he is the one who was like i can sort of hear his voice where he was also saying exactly what sanskriti said that you know indians this don't seem to be very good at dealing with any form of criticism so i think yeah. he was talking about it in context of cricket and you know how he was outspoken about some public decisions that might be taken by prominent critic- cricketers that you know they shouldn't be doing something such as conflict of interest it's a, it's a serious serious problem in that regard but you know any any first response to criticism is not introspection it's offense yes and i mean i think that it's a very subjective notion that definitely i share your subjective notion and i can just say that much you know whether or not what impact that might have i think it's something that merits amazing political uh, and sociological study to see how deep that runs but from where i stand and what i see in terms of my profession in terms of my uh let's say if i assume a role of you know someone who's just looking at the news looking at regional newspapers hindi language newspapers english language newspapers and the kind of political conversations that happen the kind of normal conversations that happen every day the first response is not introspection it is taking offense and the problem is in public office that that really shouldn't be the case right i mean if you're in public office public office demands criticism it's i mean if it demands responsibility it equally demands criticism and if your first reaction is offense and your offense is i am going to do something about it and i'm going to use my political power to do something about it that doesn't make for a very uh, robust society that thrives on its criticism to do better it it becomes sort of caricatures itself into a society that goes after anyone who says anything and uh, i i don't know which way that's going to go but yeah i share your subjective uh, definitely and what i take away from this talk <laughs> is the fact that what seems to be in india now a society that's tending towards liberalism we have got a state of political parties that's more prickly than ever before but 
states have also been prickly and we've got a judiciary that is choosing select choosing cases selectively of course because people are making these issues these simple issues to be national issues so if i'm making any sense here no, but what is the example that you have about simple issues and national issues issues that have already been uh, upheld by the supreme court before and you're just bringing them up again which makes no sense because you've already got a precedence and we already know what is the sense That's of the court yeah right so i wouldn't go so far i mean ultimately in a system where uh, the court is sort of functioning as something that ultimately decides disputes and decides okay we think that this is what the law is tomorrow society's conception of that being right can change and it can very validly change so i'll give you an example and this is again going back to the constitution our con- like we have a we have what is called preventive detention in india right totally different from our free sp- it links to free speech as well because in some cases people who engage in robust free speech can even be subjects of preventive detention targets of preventive detention and let me just very briefly tell you why is it such a big problem because in normal cases you will at least go through the effort of trying to suggest oh this person committed a crime and therefore i am going to arrest them in preventive detention the idea is they are dangerous and therefore i am going to send them in jail and that jailing happens for 3 months at a time 3 months right and normally in arrests you have to justify an arrest to a magistrate a magistrate will look at it at least, you know and you can file for bail i'm saying that preventive detention is part of the constitution in a sense how we regulate preventive detention is also part of the constitution the court has again and again said it's fine i'm saying today if i was to sort of lead let's say a political party on one of the planks of that political party is that all of this including the supreme court's views are incorrect and we if i come to par i will force through a constitutional amendment to rid ourselves of this i'm saying that that's very valid there shouldn't be a conversation about it and i'm saying that again they they even people who think that okay fine there are some forms of religious freedom that you know they are more comfortable with and you and i might definitely disagree with those those ideas of religious freedom where the police needs to give its thumbs up before two people decide to marry and they can get crashed a wedding even at the end ultimately you know i can't say that those people aren't entitled to their views but is a is a state allowed to pass that into law that's a different fight altogether right? i pity those people because they are not getting damages in forms of money because uh, yeah. I, you know yesterday only i read about something along the lines of these two people that there was a hindu woman and a muslim man they were consenting towards that marriage right but this like this police bashed into the wedding and they said that you're not marrying because you are interfaith like interfaith marriages so what is happening i mean i don't i understand and is the state really that stupid to pass a law that i mean how can a state be so stupid it's not about stupid right a state is responding to political consensus people have been voted into par on this plank it was part of the political plank even during the election for certain political parties Definitely. but i'm going to change the conversation slightly to focus on one thing that you said there which was about damages yes. and i think that's that's again essential to not only a respect for civil liberties yes. because ultimately and this goes back to where we started right yes. if you have a setup where you know a state is allowed to arrest you jail you sanction you in whatever way without any threat of damages to itself 
then what is even if a court says okay fine that law is bad how are you really going to affect police practices and yeah, that yeah. links to even the us right for instance police brutality is an issue that is rife across the us now yeah, if yeah. you look at decisions that are talking about getting damages and getting recompense for what is arbitrary police violence right you'll find that those are totally different things to be able to sue the government for wrongs that i suffer because i shouldn't be arrested for this i shouldn't have to suffer jail and obviously the kind of aggression oppression that comes with it but i mean if it's problematic in the us it's beyond i mean you know it's not even part of the conversation here to, yes. to think of filing this suing the state for damages and getting something it's it's not even part of the conversation and the few instances where it happens in high profile cases which is why they really stick out in memory so one instance being this case that came up recently and right now it's part of an article in the caravan in the isro spy scandal of 1990 oh, yes so, i mean merits of the isro spy scandal aside it's a very prominent instance of one individual taking on the system and getting damages for the agony that he suffered right so that's interesting similarly if you go back and kerala is another example for this there are horrible instances of people who got picked up during the internal emergency of 1975 to 1977 where so there are we know how many people got arbitrarily picked up how many people sued the government right it's just not part of the conversation and until you have accountability not only about criticism but also about actually giving damages so i think that's also one direction in which cause lawyering will head hopefully Yes. and that's some direction which people have already started doing it but uh, sorry this last example on this because yes. it's contemporary uh the news from a certain part of tamil nadu in july of this year about custodial violence and deaths in the case of jayaraj and benix and and, and it, it became national news it became international news but again compensation doesn't come because you fight the government you know what happened there was that the chief minister said okay i am going to give ex gratia compensation it's a totally different conversation it's about the ruler saying okay i will give you money take money be happy my subjects it's not about a citizen going to court and saying you had no right to do this yes and i ought to be compensated for what was totally unlawful action on your part we are still on the first mode of conversation and i think that you know all those conversations about subjects and citizens criticism all of that all of that's interconnected and slowly slowly we're definitely having more and more uh, contestations of you know are we willing to just be happy by being subjects i yeah, wanted definitely. to Uh, just just a i because i i asked this question with a certain individual in my mind right because uh, you see sudha barajwad spending 3 years in jail now yeah. since 2018 and you see these people spending years in jail and after all they will get cer- certain sort of like i'm not making any assumptions but let's just be real with ourselves there are people who spend half a decade in jail and been acquitted so they just lost all their life and the government is not doing anything they just and it's it's up to us also right because if i'm spending half a decade in in jail i'm just happy to be out i am not again wanting to challenge that authority again because i'm 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 scared 
so i think i asked this question with a certain individual in mind and that makes absolute sense because we need more people to stand up like against these people to be very very sorry but i think abhishek had to say something yes so i can I was just going. To, I was just going to pass an observation that when I speak to people in the legal activist community, there's like code red emergency, everything like civil liberties under under threat, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then when I speak to people of the general public, that I don't see that level of emergency. Yeah. To be very honest, it's just yeah. we are just we're, like we are a group of people that are talking amongst each other in this legal secularist language, yeah. which is not percolating, and yeah, and I find and I and I think that. to drive the conversation towards effective long term scale i don't think the answer comes from the judiciary i think it comes from the society it comes bottom up absolutely. not top down yeah absolutely and which is why i said that you know it's not i mean people who take decisions even though supreme court or court might have said something even like you know questioning that i'm still i, I fully respect that because like you said i don't think that the answers come from top down and ultimately a society you know your paper rights are not going to define your scope of liberty it's about how willing you are to fight for them and i mean you know the structure of india is such that unless especially the middle class i mean unless you know you see the system getting affected in a in a let's say non classist way you're not going to see that so just and that sort of ties up into what i was going to say to sanskriti's question data is really interesting on this front right and if you look at whatever available government data we have about law enforcement criminal law enforcement it is disproportionately poor marginalized communities that have to go to prison usually also people who don't have more than standard 10th education so that sort of people who might have gone to school till age 15 and 14 actually depends on where you are so disproportionately you know it's it's not only minorities in terms of religious and caste minorities who are in prison but also people who are not well educated who go to prison people who are moneyed don't really end up experiencing the the hard end of the stick that's one and the second is one thing that is concerning and if you look at the data about you know she spoke about sudha bharadwaj as an example of just people spending longer people spending un imaginably horribly long amounts of time in prison has been the case you know there have been those instances but what's worrying is that and i'm writing a paper on this so i i've uh, i've been recently reading all these reports from 1995 onwards to 2020 2019 is that you have a trend between let's say 2000 to 2010 where prison numbers are not really increasing that so india does not have too many people in prison as a national figure okay so let's be very clear about that for some reason or the other too long to discuss that but india still has two thirds of prisoners as people who are not convicts they are under, under trials they are not yet a judge to be guilty of a crime and what's interesting is that between two and i not i don't know the reasons for this but 2000 to 2010 not government related but you see a pattern where slowly prison populations don't increase by that much you actually have some years where the overall prison population decreases year on year but underneath that the length of time that people started spending in custody you know by the end of that decade it started increasing and that increase has continued 
so as under trials over the last 25 years or so actually you know the amount of time that on an average people spend has started to increase so let's say if it 1995 it was around 40% of people in prison for up to 3 months today that's around down to 35% and there has been more than 2% increases in the people who are in prison for up to 1 to 2 years up to 2 to 3 years and you know those 1 to 2% are thousands of people yes and it is deeply worrying that more and more time is spent by people in prison as under trials and longer time is being spent and yes. i think that you know there is something to say that people are being sent away without you know it's going to it has costs because it makes people cynical about what the law is doing what the criminal law is doing because if, if that's if that if that is what the overall perception of the law is that people who go to prison just go to prison mm-hmm. it becomes delinked from you know whether they're guilty or whether they're innocent yes and just imagine so then you know you link it back to their reputation about them getting acquitted it's just it just stops mattering right because prison is what matters you throw people into prison completely separating it from whether or not the question of their guilt whether they're guilty you are you i mean you then are living in a setup where arrest and prison bias themselves no matter what the allegation is are able to ruin your life and that's worrying that's worrying to the level of you know it fundamentally changes what your society is like and i think as i think this conversation should be a completely different episode because nobody's talking about it even though it's such a pervasive problem in the criminal justice legal community and i think we we do need to give more emphasis to criminal justice reform in general and and abhinav i think you've given us so much insight uh and you know we can keep talking and talking but i think this is a good excuse to invite you back to talk about some of the issues that you brought up including criminal justice reform um on that note i think i learned a lot um you know it's always fun talking to lawyers because you realize how much you, how how little you know your own country and and what people are experiencing in in, in within that system uh Thanks so much for coming on, and I hope you come back on next in, in a few in a few weeks or months. <laughs> Surely, if you invite. Me.